Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Can I be a dad for a moment? My wife may, oh, I don't know. Um, I don't know that I should, but I, I've, I've had a proud dad moment. And I don't know that I should, but I'm going to. First of all, uh, so my kid's soccer team, that was a tied score yesterday. They didn't want to play this other team because the weather was awful. The other team insisted uh, because the other team is convinced that they're better than my kid's team, even though my kid's team beat them last year. So they insisted on playing and it wound up being a tied game. My kid was not able to be there, though. He got injured. He got injured um, during a uh, sporting activity at school, hurt his thumb, uh, and wound up throwing his first punch. You know, there are these moments, and I, I got I to gotta just confess something. My wife is more hands-on with the kids than I am. Like, for example, today. I left the house at 8.30, and I will not be home until around 8 o'clock tonight. I'm doing six-hour, really seven hours radio because I had some others to do as well. Um, And yesterday was the same way. So there is a kid in class who tends to bully the other kids, and my son tends never to stick up for himself. And, but sticks up for everybody else. Well, yesterday he was the one being bullied and normally doesn't stick up for himself and gets very emotional about it. Finally had enough and he punched the bully. Well, his thumb was hurt. And I will just say that my wife's and my concern was not so much that our kid finally stood up for himself, but uh, he didn't make a fist and tuck his thumb in. We've we've wanted to make sure that that was not the case. It turns out the, the reason he actually had enough of the bully is uh, the bully was spiking a volleyball at him and, and caused him to flip his right thumb back, but my kid's left-handed and finally took action. And apparently the, the other kid was so stunned that mine, of all the kids, my pacifist son, was the one that did it that he, he was so surprised he didn't do anything back. It was just, it, I, yeah, I, I realize uh, with all the other topics we're talking today, should I bring this up? But I'm just, you know, we, we have instructed our children when it, being faced with things like this to to do what you can to avoid it. Um, but you got to be able to stand up for yourself as well. And I'm just a kind of proud dad that my kid did. It's, it's not the norm. We're making him apologize to both the teacher in whose class it happened and to the kid he did it to. He does need to apologize, but we're glad he stood up for himself. Um, just kind of one of those moments, though, when we, your, your parenting moment arrives and uh, have you raised your kids. And I am very, I am blessed with two kids who get along with each other. Like we almost have to separate our kids at night because uh, we try to eat at the dinner table and they crack each other up so much. Dinner goes on for hours and their food's cold and then they don't want to eat it. But I'm glad our kids get along and, and they're both very deeply empathetic. They're more likely to stand up for other people than they are for themselves and oftentimes get railroaded um, themselves because they don't stand up for themselves. They're so busy standing up for other people and until they snap. And yesterday, my kid had enough, and I don't blame him. Uh, and the school dealt with it judiciously as, as they should. He's not suspended, but um, 
had, did have to talk to the principal, and I'm just proud dad moment, not proud that my kid was in a fight, but proud that my kid stood up for himself um, and and then was willing to deal with the consequences and not make excuses for it. That's the other thing, too, is when your kids want to make excuses, they do something they shouldn't do, and then they want to make excuses for it and blame everyone else. Nope, he totally owned up to it, explained why he did it, and I'm like, well, kid, you'll have to deal with the consequences, but I'm you did what you thought needed to be done at the time and have put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off, and, and like this kid that it happened with is like everybody knows this is the this is the class bully. So dad parenting moment there and the school handled it as you would want them to. All right. I'm going to go to the phones now. Greg, you're going to be up next. Welcome. How are you? Good afternoon, Eric. How are you? Good. What's going on? Well, you struck a nerve. You may have hit bullseye here. Um, we, you and I have spoken education in the past. Our kids are similar ages. They go to somewhat similar schools. Um, our Christian school has seen a massive influx in interest. There's a huge waiting list. First, it was due to COVID. But the past two years, it is due to culture. And mm-hmm. parents are seeking a foundation. They're seeking structure for their children. Uh, they're turning away from the public schools. Uh, I'm so hopeful for school choice in Georgia. and Thankful the governor put his weight behind it yesterday. I hope it's enough. Um, but this may be an antidote, but I think there's data behind the antidote, to use your phrase, that there is uh, a groundswell across this country, and it may just be flyover country, but there's people turning back to God. I, you know, and, look, I, I actually think it's happening everywhere. Whether you, you look at the Asbury College or Asbury University revival situation, I, I think there's a deep curiosity about it, Greg. Um, whether or not it holds, I don't know. What I will say is this, and I'm glad you bring this up. Let, let me let me talk about this one, and I probably shouldn't, and I'm going to, and Philip, you know what? We might as well record this and go on and put this on social media and get me in trouble with certain people who you and I both know. <laughs> I am a parent of two children. One is 17 and one is 14, and... When our children started out their education, we decided to put them in a Christian school. And what we discovered over time is that there are many schools that might hold themselves out as Christian schools, but there's a difference between a school that values the Christian education and a school that is Christian in name only. And we ultimately wound up moving our children to a school that is not just a Christian school, but a covenantal school. And that matters greatly to me. And what do I mean by covenantal? For those of you who don't know, a covenantal school is a Christian school where the people who are part of the school have to buy into the mission. And you educate together. So we could not send our children to the school without the school knowing that the parents shared the faith values of the school. There are some Christian schools that open the doors to all comers and say, anyone who wants to give their child a Christian education, come. Many people want to come because they perceive the Christian school as not having the disciplinary problems of the public schools, but they couldn't care less about the faith mission of the school. And what happens, including in our old school, is that the outside culture changed the school more than the school changed the kids. The religious instruction, for example, was de minimis. You didn't have a lot of it. You had a little bit of it because they were a Christian school, but there wasn't a lot of it. 
the school that our children go to now is not a school open to everyone, and it's not a school for just anybody. It is a school for families of believers who want to somewhat shelter their children from the storms outside in culture so that they can be sure what they believe and grow in their faith before they're thrust into culture. Now, I have friends of mine all the time who say, well, you know, you send your kid to this other Christian school, they're going to get a Christian education, it's church-affiliated, and they'll be missional to the kids who come in from outside. And my point is, I don't know a single missionary who didn't first go through some missional training before becoming a missionary. Why do I want my child, without any understanding of what he actually believes, to become a missionary before encountering the outside culture? You should have your children grounded in your values before they have to deal with the outside world that is hostile to those values, lest they leave and get pulled along by the currents of outside culture. And a lot of Christian schools out there are just willing to open their doors to all comers, build their endowment, show everyone, look at the lavish facilities we have and the great education you're going to get and look at all the prestigious schools our kids have gone to. And that's no substitute for actually raising kids in faith. This isn't for everyone. My kid's school is not for everyone. In fact, there are other Christian schools in town who look down on our kids' school because they're much more selective in who they allow in. But I got to tell you, in our kids' school versus another Christian school, we're not dealing with the cultural problems. It's not to say that our school is flawless. It's not to say that we haven't had problems. And it's not to say we won't have problems. But it is to say that uh, we're not dealing with the pornography and sex and drugs and behaviors and alcohol and parties and, and prevailing cultural winds that so many of the other private schools, including Christian schools in our area, have to regularly deal with. And when our kids have their Bible education, they're having like stuff I've got in seminary. I'm glad I went to seminary because my kids come home and they ask these deep theological questions that they wouldn't have asked had they stayed at the other school and gotten that Christian education. I mean, our school actually brought in an entire group. I actually paid for it, full disclosure, brought in an outside group, got all the high school kids together, ninth through 12th grade, and did an entire day with them on when you leave this safe space for Christian education and go out into the culture of the world, you're going to deal with people who are gay, who are in a same-sex marriage, who are transgender, and you're to love these people and treat them as your friends as best you can, but also your values conflict with their values. So how do you navigate a world where the people around you have values that aren't your values? How do you deal with this? And they spend an entire day in this sort of discussion. They're, this is a month later. They're still dealing with it. By the way, this group is called Knowing Jesus Ministries. If you want them to come to your kid's school. Our kid's school is a classical education school. So the Christian school they were going to was a common core school. My wife and I couldn't help our kids with math because it was common core. Common core is designed to shut parents out of the education process. They don't tell you that they're doing that. They don't advertise that. Tonight, but that's the fact. They call the old school math you and I learned grandma math to make it pejorative to the kids. And then they, they, their reading is incentivized of who can read the most books. doesn't matter. You, you get penalized if you read a grown-up book because you can't read as many books. You, it's, it's all about reading as many books at your level as possible. You're reading a high school book and you're in fifth grade. Well, good luck. You're not going to have read as many books, so you're going to get penalized. Our current school uses old math, the real math, 
the grown-up math that you and I use. Our current school uses real reading and, and real vocabulary lessons and phonics and Latin. Yes, they have to learn Latin. And I'll tell you, the big difference between your standard run-of-the-mill Christian education and what our kids are getting now, where they're in a classical Christian school, where you've got the rhetoric school and you've got the logic school, where you, you, you start with memorization and then you learn how to synthesize in middle school the data you learned in, in elementary school, and then in high school you learn uh, the, how, to, how to put it all together and comprehend it and analyze it and argue it and defend it. The big difference is that our oldest went to a program this past summer at a very prestigious academic institution, uh, college she's interested in going to. And she went to school with kids from top high schools from Chicago and Connecticut and Florida and Georgia and Virginia and Washington, D.C. And interestingly enough, the roommates they paired her with were an atheist and a Wiccan and a Buddhist and a transgender Satanist. I'm not making that up. And not only did she hold firm in her faith, but she was also the leader because none of the other kids, although they had had computers and technology and, and access to tools that she doesn't get at her small school, she was the only one who knew how to stood up, stand up in front of adults and make a presentation and have arguments and be able to debate logically things and not emotionally. And that education stood out. Classical Christian education with a covenantal background. It actually has mattered tremendously for our kids who aren't being uh, having to deal with the cultural currents that so many kids in public and private schools are dealing with, and that all the families who are at the school, it's small, it doesn't have a lot of resources, and the other schools in town say, oh, look, it doesn't have the massive football fields and the soccer field and the, uh, all the state-of-the-art computers. What it has is a group of families who are invested in the faith journey of every single kid in the school. And in our current cultural times, that matters way more than you've got the latest breaking version of Windows running on the computers. All the people care about all the kids and doesn't just care about the kids and their minds, but their souls as well. You can't put a price on that sort of education these days. I have not only converted my entire family to Bull and Branch Sheets, but a lot of my friends as well because I actually believe in them. You can feel the craftsmanship, and the amazing thing is that these sheets get softer every time you wash them. Don't believe me? Give them a try. Right now, you can get early access to Bowl & Branch's spring sale. You use code ERIC, that would be my name, E-R-I-C-K, and get 20% off today at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. The promo code is ERIC. Exclusions apply. See the site for details. I got to tell you guys, these sheets are designed for incredible night sleeps. They're made without toxins. They're free from synthetic pesticides, formaldehydes, harsh chemicals. They fit really deep mattresses. And I've got a thick mattress, and they don't shrink up, which is great. Take care of the sheets. The sheets take care of you. And you get a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. And right now, use code ERIC to take 20% off today at BolandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D Branch.com. Promo code ERIC. Hi there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. I got to read you this tweet from Reuters. Tells you everything you need to know 
about the organization. This is the actual tweet from Reuters, the news organization, about the shooting in Nashville, Tennessee. In fact, Philip, I'm going to record this. It is oftentimes when you talk about media bias, how something is said, what is said, what is left off. This is the actual tweet that Reuters put out to cover the shooting at the school in Nashville, Tennessee. I quote, former Christian school student kills three children, three staff in Nashville. That's the actual tweet from Reuters. Again, former Christian school student kills three children, three staff in Nashville shooting. Left out the word shooting there. Former Christian school student kills three children, three staff in Nashville shooting. That's how Reuters chose to announce a transgender shooter going into a Christian school and killing three children and three staff. Well, and what the left is saying, the left's reaction here is, oh, well, I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. This is this is the truth. Former Christian school student killed three children, three staff at Nashville shooting. It's how they cover the story, how they word the story that reveals so much of the biases of the press. What is so telling to me are so many of the progressives who say, oh, well, they just cover that accurately. Yes, they covered it accurately, technically, but does it really tell you the story of what happened? Does it really tell you the story of what happened? It probably does not tell you the story of what happened. In fact, in this case, we know it didn't. Now, when we come back, we need to talk about something completely different. Pokemon. <laughs> yes. When we come back, I, I promise me or you will stick around because we got to talk about Pokemon. In particular, a Pokemon card competition. There is a story out there. You're, look, you know, we, we say sometimes smart, fearless, occasionally funny. This is the occasionally funny part. This is a true story about a Pokemon card competition that's happened in the last week where one person got thrown out of the competition. You, you're not going to guess why they got thrown out of the competition when we come back. Okay, I in, in 12 years of radio, in 12 years, years of radio, I do not believe I have ever once talked about Pokemon. <laughs> oh my God. I saw the story uh, and had tip to John Schwepp who sent it to me. I, I thought it was nonsense. Uh, this is actually true. Are you all ready for this? I don't know that you're ready for this. This is this is a brave new world. A Pokemon trading card game player was disqualified from a tournament over the weekend. By the way, the player had started five and zero. Oh. 
the Pokemon trading card player was disqualified from the tournament over the weekend for not declaring his preferred pronouns in a serious enough manner. It's not that he didn't declare its pronouns. He just didn't do so with the seriousness required. I'm not kidding. This is this is what the play this is the player's write up. It all started around six. I was five and zero oh and had just hit Alex. Leave out the last name here. A very well known player as well as a very skilled player. With all this in mind, I was obviously a bit nervous. Keep in mind, I'd been on stream two times prior, but it's still always nerve wracking being in front of so many people. I went to my table and saw Alex and a judge standing there, and the judge informed us that we were going to be playing on stream. I was excited, and we started to walk over to the stream area. On our way over to the stream area, the judge asked us for our preferred pronouns. I said, um, he or him or, uh, and I paused trying to think of the preferred pronoun, the third pronoun being his. As I just stood there looking stupid trying to think of the third pronoun, I felt embarrassed because I was failing to think of a simple word. Due to the nerves and me being embarrassed, I let out a little laugh, just a normal nervous laugh. My response together ended up being, um, he or him or, uh, ha, ha, his. That's it. That's all I said. Anyway, after we continued to walk and we reached the stream area, just to clarify, the judge asked once more, what are your guys' preferred pronouns? Alex said he and him. And I said, oh, yeah, he and him. Ha, ha. The little laugh at the end was because I was trying not to be awkward and because I was just stating the exact thing Alex had just stated. And it was kind of silly to me in the scenario. In this scenario, I was also reminded of when I was on stream for top eight of Baltimore earlier in the season. When I was on the stream, no one asked for my pronouns. So to be safe, the commentators referred to me as they, them. My friends made fun of me sometimes for this, just lighthearted jokes because it embarrassed me a bit because those weren't my pronouns. To clarify, I have zero issue with people's pronouns and how they choose to identify and express themselves. I have never had issues with it and never will because at the end of the day, it's their choice. It doesn't affect my life. As long as people are happy, I'm happy. Keep this in mind when reading. Back to the event. After Alex and I gave our responses for the second time, the judge looked at me and said, okay, just wanted to check to be safe. I go by they, them, so don't be a jerk about it. They smiled after this and gave no signs of being upset or uncomfortable. When they said, don't be a jerk about it, I thought they were just saying something in general, like in the future. I had no clue I had upset them, and I had no intention to do so, whatever. I thought nothing about it because to me it was just normal conversation that people have before going on stream. It was basically just like how San Diego went before I went on stream. We go on stage, get set up, first pump, and play game one. I brick most of the game and end up scooping to save time. I felt very comfortable going into game two matchup-wise and felt I had a very good chance of winning the match after seeing what Alex's deck was made of. I said, I'll go second, and we pick up and start shuffling for game two. Then I see a few judges walking over to the stage, and they get on stage, and one starts talking to Alex. Alex and I both extremely confused because we have no clue what's happening. At first, I thought he must have had a deck list error or something because the judge was only talking to him. They told me to keep my headphones on during this so I couldn't hear what they were saying to Alex. Then one of the judges put a headset on and asked me, what was said to the judge when they asked for your pronouns? This is where I began to get worried and wondered if I'd done something wrong. 
I answered the questions that I said he, him. And the judge then asked me if there's anything else I said, and they wanted to know what my tone was. They said this very important, and I answered this truthfully. I said the only possible thing I might have done that could have been taken wrong was the way I laughed a bit and told them I was just nervous. The judge then told me to walk off the stage and talk off stage. I was confused during this, and even more confused when I see two more players walking on stage to take Alex and my spots. This has never happened before, at least from what I've heard. I walked behind the curtains by the stage, and the head judge asked me what exactly I said. I explained what happened, that the nervous laugh was because I was embarrassed and because of what went down in Baltimore. During this, I was very polite and calm. I made sure to clearly get my point across and made it extremely clear that I had no intention whatsoever of harming or upsetting anyone. I explained I had done absolutely nothing against people with pronouns and I never have. This was no incentive I could have possibly had, especially since I just recently earned my invite. What did I have to lose? The head judge seemed to understand, so I was a bit relieved. But then he pulls out the rule book on his phone and says that due to me violating their inclusive policy and due to me making someone feel unsafe and uncomfortable, I was disqualified. I remember saying, wait, what? I was so confused. I had just explained very calmly what had happened, and he seemed like he had listened. I was stunned. I asked to sit down on a nearby chair to try and process what was going on. I still had a bit of hope left and said, is there any way I can appeal this? And again, stated how really sorry I was if I upset someone. I had no malicious intent whatsoever. That's where it really escalated. The head judge tells me he was sorry, and it sucked, but I was disqualified due to Pokemon policy. <laughs> Pokemon policy! <laughs> I'm sorry, Pokemon policy. At this point, I'm on the verge of tears. But I tried my best to keep my composure. I just couldn't understand what was happening. Was the judge just not listening? Was he trying to look at my side of the story at all? One last time, I asked if I could appeal. I asked to talk to another judge or to the judge I had upset. The head judge then tells me that it was already done. They disqualified me. I asked, so you've already disqualified me, even though I was just told what told you what happened? He said, yeah, I know it sucks for everyone involved, That I'm sorry we have to do this. I just start bawling my eyes out. It felt so unfair. I was extremely polite and calm through the process. I felt I handled the situation professionally, and the judges had just not listened. I felt helpless. <sighs> Goes on from there. Dude got disqualified because he didn't identify his preferred pronouns seriously enough at a Pokemon card competition. First of all, I am today years old knowing that these things are such a big deal. It was it was on stream. It had all these people watching. It was a Pokemon competition. My gosh, and enough that the dude cried. This is this is actually rather ridiculous. <laughs> oh, I feel I feel terrible for the guy. I'm sorry. I legitimately feel terrible for the guy, but it's a Pokemon competition. <laughs> oh my gosh. I um they uh he he him what's the he him his <laughs> eh, not sufficiently toned enough. 
Oh my god. And because the last time he didn't answer, they gave him they them pronouns so as not to offend. So wait, 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 wait. So as not to offend a he him, they called him a they them so that they could be totally inclusive so they didn't miss anything. Oh my gosh, it is a religious cult. You know, okay. So this reminds me while I'm I'm reading. George Packer has a piece in the Atlantic. And yep, I, I'm just this this is the part of the show where I just read, exhaustively read instead of putting stuff in my own. Because I, I can't convey to you better than the words on the page in this. And it's so directly related to this. So this guy has a piece in the Atlantic. The moral case against equity language. The Sierra Club's equity language guide discourages using the words stand, Americans, blind, and crazy. The first two fail at inclusion because not everyone can stand and not everyone lives in this country as a citizen. The third and fourth, even as figures of speech, legislators are blind to climate change, are insulting to the disabled. The guide also rejects the disabled in favor of people living with disabilities for the same reason that enslaved person has generally in place, replaced slave to affirm by the tenet of what's called people first language that everyone is first and foremost a person, not their disability or other identity. The guide's purpose is not just to make sure the Sierra Club avoids obviously derogatory terms such as welfare queen. It seeks to cleanse language of any trace of privilege, hierarchy, bias, or exclusion. In its zeal, the Sierra Club has clear-cut a whole national park of words. Urban, vibrant, hardworking, and brown bag are all crashed to earth for subtle racism. Y'all supplants the patriarchal you guys, and elevate voices replaces empower, which used to be uplifting but is now considered condescending. The poorest classist, battle and minefield disrespect veterans, depressing appropriates a disability, migrant, no explanation, it just has to go. Equity language guides are proliferating among some of the country's leading institutions, particularly nonprofits. The American Cancer Society has one, so does the American Heart Association, the American Psychological Association, the American Medical Association, the National Recreation and Park Association, the Columbia University School of Professional Studies, and the University of Washington all have them. The words these guys recommend or reject are sometimes exactly the same, justified in nearly identical language. This is because most of the guides draw on the same source from activist organizations, a progressive style guide, the racial equity tools glossary, and a couple of others. The guides also cite one another. The total number of people behind this project of linguistic purification is relatively small, but their power is potentially immense. The new language might not stick in broad swaths of American society, but is already influencing highly educated precincts, spreading from the authorities that establish it and the organizations that adopt it to mainstream publications such as this one. Although the guides refer to language evolving, these changes are a revolution from above. They haven't emerged organically from the shifting linguistic habits of large numbers of people. They are handed down in communiques written by obscure experts who purport to speak for vaguely defined communities, remaining unanswerable to a public that's being morally coerced. A new term wins an argument without having to debate. When the San Francisco Board of Supervisors replaces felon with justice-involved person, 
It's making an ideological claim that there is something illegitimate about laws, courts, and prisons. If you accept the change, then you also acquiesce to the argument. The huge expensive energy to purify language reveals a weakened belief in more material forms of progress. If we don't know how to end racism, we can at least call it structural. The guides want to make the ugliness of our society disappear by linguistic fiat. Even by their own light, they do more ill than good, not because of their absurd bans on ordinary words like congresswoman and expat or the self-torture they require of conscientious users, but because they make it impossible to face squarely the wrongs they want to right, which is the starting point for any change. Prison does not become a less brutal place by calling someone locked up in one a person experiencing the criminal justice system. Obesity isn't any healthier for people with high weight. It's hard to know who is likely to be harmed by the phrase like native New Yorker or under fire. I doubt that even the writers of the guides are truly offended. But the people in behind the beautiful forevers know they're poor. They can't afford to wrap themselves in soft sheets of euphemism. Equity language doesn't fool anyone who lives with real afflictions. It's meant to spare only the feelings of those who use it. The project of the guides is utopian, but they're a symptom of deep pessimism. They belong to a fractured culture in which symbolic gestures are preferable to concrete actions. Argument is no longer desirable. Every viewpoint has its own impenetrable dialect, and only the most fluent insiders possess the power to say what is real. What I've described is not just a problem for the progressive left. The far right has a different vocabulary, but it too relies on authoritarian shibboleths to enforce orthodoxy. It will be a sign of political renewal in America if Americans can say maddening things to one another in the common language that doesn't require a style guide. Now listen. I mean, you think this is this is somewhat esoteric. Dude got disqualified from a Pokemon competition because he did not express his preferred pronoun sincerely enough. It is an enforced orthodoxy by authoritarians. By the way, if you want to read this Atlantic piece, if you text data to 33777, I put it at the top of the show notes today as the must read. You can get it above the fold. You don't have to be a paid subscriber to, to get it. Just text data to 33777. And also that second piece that comes back when the link is my morning piece about the nature of evil in the world today. You should probably get those, but read that Atlantic piece. It's in there. Text data to 33777. You'll get the top link back. Click that top link. You'll see it as the must read. Really probably the most important thing you'll read today about the nonsensical nature of so many of these progressive style guides that are invading institutions and corporations across America, all designed in a way to avoid people being offended. It's just so insane, and yet here we are. Oh, the other thing that's insane out there is the economy. I didn't even get a chance to get to that today and had a pile of stuff on it. The Dallas down right now. Everything's down right now. The topsy-turvy world of the stock market, inflation, world events. You need to reach out to gold uh, to Advantage Gold at 800-450-2566. Advantage Gold is the gold company that so many of you, 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 you wanted me to find a company that I could find reliable, that you could find reliable. 
Advantage Gold has been TrustLink's number one highest rated gold company seven years in a row. Advantage Gold has the best prices. they got a fantastic IRA department. They will give you a free gold IRA investment kit to teach you the nuances of how you handle using precious metals as part of your retirement. General investment as well. They answer all the questions. They do it so well. No frills. They, they do not use a bunch of gimmicks and a hard sell, which is what I like. I don't want to have my arm twisted to buy gold. just want my questions answered. And they do a great job of it. 800-450-2566. It's Advantage Gold, 800-450-2566. Give them a call. Tell them I sent you. Just if you got questions about using gold or silver, reach out to them. Let them answer your questions. 800-450-2566. Advantage Gold might be someone you can do business with. Hello there. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. If you are on WSB Radio, my flagship station in WSB, uh, in WSB, in Atlanta, Georgia, I'm with you until 7 o'clock tonight. That's right. You got me all day long. The governor of Georgia has met behind closed doors with the state house Republicans and said he wants school choice reform passed. He has thrown his full weight behind it. He actually broke that news yesterday on the radio with me and has gone full force in favor of today. We'll see if it actually gets across. We'll give you the updates locally. So the rest of the nation doesn't care about all this Georgia stuff. Um, but for those of you who do now, I, I, I gotta, I gotta spend just a moment here with, uh, this story. Half of parents are still paying their kids bills. This gets back to the story from earlier that, uh, like 75% of Americans don't think that their kids will have it better than they have it in this country. So many people given up, um, conservatives do have to come to terms with the fact that over the last 20 years, it appears the free market has failed. And I realize people sometimes joke that communists act like, uh, well, the real communists have never been tried. And I don't want to get into it, into the situation of thinking that the free market has never really been tried. The fact is we've tried the free market and it worked pretty damn well. But we've gotten out of it, and we've become protectionists of preferred interests, and we're not letting the free market work. We're bailing everybody out, and that's causing so many problems. It's given, caused people to give up hope on the future. we got to let the creative destruction of the marketplace take place and let some of these businesses collapse so people can creatively pick up the pieces and rebuild and grow.